Hi there. I'm Ari Lunette, and today I'll be trying my best to make any fucking sense of the world of pop music stands while taking a look at their interesting relationship with the musicians they follow. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that this was supposed to be last week's episode, but I had some trouble getting things together and the episode wasn't really working. But I did some extra work on it this week, and the good news is, we have an episode! A functioning episode about the world of pop stands. So one thing you need to know about me before we go into this episode, or just before you go into any other episode of this podcast, is that I'm a big pop music enthusiast. It is my bread and butter. This is the genre of music that is closest to my heart, and I think it often gets dismissed as like manufactured or inauthentic by people who don't really want to look further than what's on the radio. So I will be passionate about this topic, and it's probably going to come up in future episodes. Just a heads up. I like to think that what I'm discussing today is a rather nuanced subject, despite it being about, you know, pop stands. But I feel like there are areas that don't really get explored within commentary circles that I'd like to take a closer look at. What I'm really interested in doing this episode is attempting to go beyond just generalizations and look specifically at how pop stands on message boards and certain sections of Twitter reacted to the output releases and just the plain existence of pop stars in today's world. Because let me tell you, <laughs> it's a doozy. So, before I fully jump into this episode, I want to clarify that I myself wouldn't consider myself a stan or a real part of stan Twitter in any other way than purely peripheral, like on the outskirts. Honestly, I don't really know what I count as. Do I count as anything? Am I part of some group that I'm just not aware of? Am I just a speck of dust with nary a label on me? That is something that I couldn't answer even if I really wanted to. I would just consider myself an avid fan of pop music and someone who is happy enough to just be enthusiastic about it. Usually alone. That's my qualifications for you. I am a happy homo with a Twitter account and free Spotify. <laughs> you, you can make of my accounts what you will, and if you don't think I have any credibility on any of this, well, neither do I, but I just happen to be the one that made a podcast, and I've found this topic spicy enough to warrant a full discussion. For the benefit of anonymity and me not wanting to get sued or doxxed or get rocks thrown at my house, I'm not going to be calling out specific users or naming any specific users within this episode. For one, that's not what I want to do on this podcast. I do not just want to point at someone and be like, you did a bad thing, especially if I'm not familiar with their complete output as a user. Again, this is a rather nuanced subject. But also, I won't be calling out specific users because... Honestly, I don't think this is a case where it's about specific users causing the problems. I think it spans across a lot of people that might have had their opinions validated by others and are going along with posting certain comments and replies. That's something I've really been noticing about fandoms, but particularly pop fandoms. It's not just one or two people leading the charge, though there are larger users that have notoriety amongst fans, but it's more of a collective mindset based on the most prevalent opinions. So, let's discuss. There are lots of ways that fans can engage with pop fandom. There are different forums and message boards which are a little more specialised. Then there's Reddit and different subreddits. Then there's, I don't know, Facebook groups? Do people still make Facebook groups? I'm not sure about that one. That's a bit of a wild card. But one of the biggest places for pop fandom to cultivate itself is Twitter, and specifically Stan Twitter. I will be bringing up Stan Twitter at several points in this episode, so I want to do a quick Stan Twitter for dummies, which I mean as affectionately as possible, please don't get me wrong. 
I'm not going to be deep diving into every single side of Stan Twitter because, first of all, that would take about eight hours and it's not something I have the energy nor the qualifications to deal with. And secondly, I just think that focusing on the one relevant section of Stan Twitter is going to make a much better discussion rather than trying to address everything within the span of 40 minutes. However, it does help to know the playing field, so I'll just go through a basic guide to Stan Twitter. According to Wikipedia, and yes, I'm using Wikipedia as a source for this episode, go fight someone else. As I was saying, according to Wikipedia, Stan Twitter is a community of Twitter users that post opinions related to music, celebrities, TV shows, movies, and social media. For this episode, I'm really going to be focusing on the music side of things, as you can see in the title, because I feel like that's one of the most populated parts of the community, and the one that actually relates to the topic of the episode. (laughs) But essentially, it's just a very large group of users who are engaged with mainstream or mainstream-adjacent fandoms, particularly pop musicians and bands. There is also a big overlap with the LGBT community, and you can find a lot of gay people on Stan Twitter. They're a huge part of the culture. There are also subgroups within Stan Twitter. Not all of them are split across fandom lines, but specific fandoms can definitely act as more specific subgroups mostly the bigger ones. K-pop stands are a very big group, and they definitely have this reputation for being very active and present for their faves, but they are not this anomaly. I've seen people say that the K-pop stands are the most aggressive of the stands, and honestly, there are plenty of other stand groups that are just as intense. I personally think the Bobs and the Little Monsters are just as much in that category. <laughs> if you didn't know, Bobs are stands of Nicki Minaj and Little Monsters are stands of Lady Gaga. I myself have been at the receiving end of hate from the Little Monsters despite also being one. I will talk about that later on in the episode. Obviously, there are intersections too, like with anything. People can stand multiple people. Some people might stand two or three different acts. Some people are just generalists within the realm. And others just sit on the sidelines, scared to jump in. That's me, if you're wondering. And yes, some of them are even sensible. Some of them do not send death threats to other accounts, and they just go about their business appreciating their favourite people. But some of them are not sensible. And you'll never guess, but those are the people who get the most attention, particularly from mainstream press. There is absolutely this toxicity within stand groups, and with this big intersection of fandoms, that can get really nasty. And I've seen it. Like, this isn't just me relaying what news outlets are saying, because I think that in order to know the world of stands, and particularly stand Twitter, you kind of have to be in it, or at least around it, on the periphery. And there are a lot of positives, a lot of really awesome things about the community. Just being able to share your interests with others is a great thing. And then you've got your memes and your in-jokes that can make it really special for people. But when you have fandoms, you'll always have those people in them who are just full-on unquestioned devotion. And that can get toxic very, very quickly, especially since these are accounts in the multiples. It can turn into bullying and death threats pretty swiftly. And though I think that's something that is quite common within larger fandoms overall, Stan Twitter is like a whole brigade of fandoms stitched together, like this Franken-fandom. And at times they'll be chomping at each other. It's a lot of energy, and at times it does get flung into pretty horrific directions. I think there is also a general problem with the way that Stans talk about or to their favourite artists. Often they can tweet at them in a manner that's um, too comfortable. This goes into a whole other wormhole about parasocial relationships, but it definitely applies in this case, where you'll see a stan tweeting aggressively at their fave to release a leaked song while calling them some sort of gendered slur, 
as far as I can tell, the intent is not malicious, but it's still a problem because, you know, intention doesn't justify effect. You'll see how that plays out in one of the case studies I'm talking about later on. So I think personally, <laughs> it's very important to surround yourself with a lot of different people within these online spaces. Different men, women, and non-binary folk who at their core have a place in the community, but also bring varying content and recommendations. Now, I made it my New Year's resolution to broaden my taste in music, and I actually followed through with it. <laughs> and I've been able to do that by listening to a wide range of people. And yes, there are users out there, and particularly white gays out there, who do listen to a wide range of artists who work with different genres. There are good ones, and they have helped. I've seen this on the tiny chunk of stand Twitter that I've allowed myself to experience, but I also want to bring in another one of my sources for this episode, and that is Popheads. Popheads is a subreddit that focuses on pop music and new pop releases, and it's also been a great way of expanding my listening palette. It's also quite a bit more regulated than the wild, wild west of Stan Twitter, which is just pretty much a free-for-all. Popheads has more guidelines in terms of ensuring quality content, and that really helps because you get some more insightful discussions about pop music. It, it's not perfect, but there's definitely a lot of value in it. So that just covers where I sit in the realm of consuming pop music. Now let's move on to our case studies. So for this episode, I'll be specifically focusing on a couple of case studies. Just a quick note before I go into this section, from what I've heard, all of these artists seem like pretty respectable, decent people, and a good few of them make some great music that I love. They are not the problem. I am not attacking them at any point. That will become evident with how I discuss them compared to how I discuss their fans. But again, there are good fans. You aren't being ignored. In fact, consider my omission of you a compliment because I'm going to be talking about the problems with many pop stands. Let's begin with our first case study, Charlie XEX. She's an English recording artist who has had some more mainstream hits, but primarily has more online fandom, particularly nowadays. In terms of mainstream hits that she's had, she was featured on two big songs, Icona Pop's I Love It and Iggy Azalea's Fancy. She's also had a top 10 hit both in the US and the UK with Boom Clap from her second studio album, Sucker. Around this time, she'd kind of established this brand as a youthful, rebellious, a little bratty, but ultimately very poppy artist. And her music kind of teetered between more niche pop circles and the mainstream. However, at the end of 2015, or at least around then, her music started to evolve into something more distinctive and much more akin to what we see of her nowadays. She released the Vroom Vroom EP in early 2016, and this was a sharp departure from her previous work. It leaned a lot more electronic and delved into the genre of hyperpop. She then released two mixtapes in this style over the next few months, and eventually her third studio album in 2019. Now, I really want to emphasize eventually, we will get to that. So, this change in musical style skewed Charlie's audience away from the mainstream and the charts, but gained her a lot of new fans online, especially a large gay following predominantly on places like Stan Twitter and on Popheads. So despite some conflicts with our record label surrounding the release date of the album, the production overall was going really well. There were some really good songs being recorded, and it seemed like there was the formation of a great album. Things were going well, until they weren't. In August 2017, the entirety of Charlie's original third album that she'd been working on leaked online. 
In fact, since March, hundreds of leaked songs had started appearing online, and it's pretty much documented all of the work from the original album. And these were high-quality sound files of all of these songs getting passed around on the internet. It's not completely clear how this happened or who was responsible for the leaks, though my research has led me to believe it came from within the fandom itself. Either way, this had an undeniable impact on the project. Most of these tracks from the original third album, unofficially named XEX World, never made it onto her eventual third album, which got released in 2019, because Charlie had made a big decision about the album. She was starting over. Explicitly citing the release of all of these leaks as the reason, Charlie started work on another third album, and in September 2019, it finally arrived. Simply titled Charlie, it kept to its original promise of fully exploring the hyperpop sound she dipped her toes into with the EPs and the mixtapes, while featuring a whole host of collaborations. And it was an album worth waiting for, I have to say. Though this album turned out great, I do still want to emphasise the gravity of these leaks and how they affected Charlie. She'd already been struggling with her record label delaying a project made up of already finished songs, and to have the opportunity to finally release them taking them away must have been absolutely crushing. When you make something, whether that's an album, a song, a film, a book, whatever, chances are you'll have put in so much time and energy and emotional investment into them, and you'll want to bring that creation into the open in your own way, on your own terms. And she never got to do that with the original album. So, now we need to talk about the fans, because a lot of the time they did not help. First off, a lot of the fans were instrumental in getting these leaks spread across the fandom. Now, I feel it's important to say that generally leaks aren't an unusual thing. Most big artists have songs leak, whether it's outtakes from recording sessions or upcoming singles and album tracks. It it happens a lot. However, the scale of these leaks was extraordinary. Fans had huge playlists full of unreleased Charlie tracks, and much of that material was from XEX World those sessions. Still to this day, people associate Charlie XCX with leaked music and having a dodgy Google Drive password. A big part of this is having these leaks spread on Twitter and on message boards, etc. And these songs can then get their own little cult followings, with tracks such as Come To My Party and Taxi being big examples of this. And around this time, fans tended to become increasingly aggressive with wanting certain songs to be released. On one hand, it seemed to be intended as playful banter, but on the other hand, again, intention doesn't justify effect, and the effect was not positive. Chances are that, to her, these songs have been tainted by the leaking, and they now have quite a bit of trauma attached to them. When a piece of work is tainted by a scandal, it can be hard to separate the art from the circumstances it was released under, but sometimes it felt like the fans didn't understand this, or at times just didn't care. Now, this was a big enough problem, and though I don't see it as much nowadays, I felt like it needed mentioning. Because it gets weirder. (laughs) I'm sure if you know about concerts, you remember concerts. You know, that that thing where you pay money to join a large group of people and watch a musician do a thing on stage. Remember that? Remember that old chestnut? Yeah, me neither. (laughs) So back in the time where you could gather with a lot of people in large groups safely, One could pay extra to not only go to the concert, but also meet their favourite artists in person. The meet and greet. You can share a few words with your idol, get a photo taken, and be on your merry way having had an amazing experience to treasure. I've never done a meet and greet at a concert, but I was able to do a meet and greet of sorts early this year, 
pre-COVID shitstorm, I got to meet the drag queens Davina DeCampo and Stacey Lynn Matthews after they performed in a pantomime, and it was an incredible experience. <laughs> I was a shaking wreck afterwards because I just couldn't get over how amazing that was. I didn't know that there was a possibility of this happening beforehand, as it was announced at the end of the show. You got to buy a t-shirt and then get a wristband to meet the cast after the show. So I had no preparation for this, and I just had to wing it. And by that, I mean stumble on the stage like a blubbering mess, talking about how amazing these two are, and how I was so happy that they'd come over here. But even if I did have preparation for a meet and greet, I would have not done any of these following things. I would not have brought a canister of poppers. I would not have brought a douche used for performing enemas, and I would have not brought my grandmother's ashes. Why am I mentioning that very specific list of items? Because some of Charlie XCX's fans decided to do exactly that. Yep, I'm not kidding. They decided it would be a lovely idea to bring an urn of ashes, an anal douche, and some poppers for one of my favourite musicians, someone I admire, someone I really enjoy listening to, and ask for them to sign those items. That all happened. And by the way, it wasn't one single person bringing in all of those items, which probably would have been a lot less harrowing as it would just be this one rogue fan and more of an exception. But this is three different people each bringing one of those items. And that's an unusual phenomenon, isn't it? I hope I'm not being presumptuous saying that. I haven't heard that fans bringing these items is a common thing. I hope that's not a common thing. I would be rather concerned if that were a standard greeting, but, you know, language evolves and greetings evolve, and maybe that's just the new thing. Maybe signing CDs and programs is a little passé, and these artists really want a sense of spontaneity. If that is the way that the world is evolving in its meet-and-greet etiquette, I'd be surprised. Because bringing Nana's ashes and a douche to meet your favourite pop star is honestly pretty weird. Thankfully, I was not alone in my concern for this trend. There was a lot of coverage on this, and rightfully so, because this shit needs to be called out. I'd like to bring up a quote that I saw on one of the Pophead's threads around this time this was going down. In the words of Reddit user Bopo, buying some meet and greet tickets doesn't give you carte blanche for a picture. That quote I 100% agree with. If you're going to meet an artist, in my mind, there's still a level of etiquette and a level of respect that you need to have. Whether it's free or something you pay extra for, you don't pay extra to forego all decency. Being a fan doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to your favourite artists, whether that's in person or online. These artists are still people. Charlie XCX is a real person, and from what I've seen, she's tried her best to grin and bear it, to give her fans the best experience, and at times participating in things she hasn't been comfortable with. It's awful to think that people who admire musicians will take that to mean that they'll put up with any weird or inappropriate shit that gets done to them, because hey, I'm your biggest fan. That's not a healthy enthusiasm. That's creepy. Stop being creepy 2020. This has been a public service announcement. So now we've covered Charlie XCX, let's talk about another artist I really admire. Earlier this year, Dua Lipa released one of the best albums of 2020, despite the album getting leaked and releasing it during the apex of a global pandemic. But she did the damn thing, and that is pretty amazing in itself. I'd already been a fan of Dua Lipa, particularly the singles that led up to the release of her first studio album in 2017. That material, I think, was great, and I still enjoy it quite a lot. However, she got quite a bit of criticism for being a tad generic and not having a great stage presence. I saw a lot of jokes about that, and I was a little miffed because I thought her music was awesome and her stage presence was just fine for someone starting off. But what she did with all of this criticism is something pretty amazing 
she listened, she found a more distinct musical avenue, she upped her stage presence, and she released a compact and perfectly executed second album, Future Nostalgia. This gave her a lot more credibility within the music scene. Her songs were already good, but when you release a song like Don't Start Now, that's a whole other level, and people noticed. I would argue that there are some examples of pop perfection on this album, and as much as I love pop music, I do not throw around the label of pop perfection very often. I would say at least Don't Start Now and Physical warrant this label, plus one of the unreleased tracks from the sessions of this album. But I don't want to get sued, so let's just say those two. (laughs) And those are just on an objective level. In my opinion, at least half the album is top tier, if not most of it. Pretty Please, Hallucinate, Levitating, Cool, Break My Heart, all exceptional songs with clear points of influence and homage. You can tell the kind of music that Dio was inspired by and what she wanted to do with the album, and it just worked so well. So, you have a top tier album released. What are we to do now? Well, take to the club, of course. But no, we're in a global pandemic, so that's not happening. Okay, let's bring the club to the fans. Not too long ago, Dua Lipa put out a remix album. Not a remix album as in add a few collapse of the existing tracks, but a full remix album that involved bringing in new producers and reworking the album into a full club experience. Club Future Nostalgia was predominantly produced by a DJ named The Blessed Madonna, not to be confused with the Madonna, who was also involved in this album. Other remixes were going to be involved in this album on select tracks, but you could say that the Blessed Madonna was like an executive producer for the project. So, Blessed Madonna, Actual Madonna, and Missy Elliott were announced to be a part of a new remix of Levitating. This is one of my favourite songs from the original album, so I was excited. This remix would be the first single from the remix album Club Future Nostalgia. And this is where the mess begins. (laughs) So before I get onto the song, I feel like, as of recently, the definition of remix has really been changed in the past couple of years. Not the actual definition of a remix, but what that word means to listeners when you put it in a song title. A lot of remixes nowadays that get released tend to be versions of the original song with a new featured artist. Doja Cat's Say So remix with Nicki Minaj, Megan Thee Stallion's Savage remix with Beyonce, Chloe and Halle's Do It remix with Doja Cat's City Girls and Gelato, and Lizzo's Good As Hell remix with Ariana Grande. These are all versions of the original song with relatively similar, if not identical, production to the originals, featuring an artist that wasn't on the original. And I I think that when people saw that Dua Lipa was making a remix album, they jumped to that conclusion that it was going to be an album full of just versions of the original songs with original production, but with new featured artists. And that is not what the album was, or what it was intended as. And we got the first take of that with the Blessed Madonna's remix of Levitating, featuring Madonna and Missy Elliott. So, Levitating remix gets released, and there is a massive split between fans. (laughs) Some fans loved it, some fans absolutely hated it. (laughs) Initially, I was in the latter camp. I felt as if all of the peaks and valleys of the original song had been removed and replaced with a lazy looped instrumental. I liked Madge's contributions and I loved Missy's verse, but the production for me was a letdown. I have to say, in the context of the album, it does make more sense. And over the past few weeks, the remixes grew on me. Like, it's very catchy. However, when I first heard the remix, and I really didn't like it at the time, I thought to myself, oh, well, I can just listen to the original instead. So that is what I did. 
However, not everyone took this approach. Some fans decided that this was sacrilege on the original song and that the Blessed Madonna had ruined it. Now, I think that the style of the song in the album overall isn't for everyone. I've seen this sentiment online that if you didn't like the remix, then you just didn't get real club music, which I suppose can be true, but truth be told, some people just aren't into it. Some people aren't a fan of that kind of club remix and are well within their right to prefer the original. But to say that this remix has ruined the original version of Levitating, honestly, I think that's fucking asinine. And I think that some of the fans are being far too overdramatic about it. Nobody's forcing you to listen to the remix. Nobody is holding a gun to your head, wiping the original version of the song off the face of the earth, and forcing you to listen to the new one. It's a remix. Remixes are so easy to ignore. Like, if a remix falls in the forest, nobody's going to hear that shit. It is just something for people who like the idea of listening to a new take on the song. But these fans just went ballistic, and they were sending all of this hate and body shaming, and it was just so disgusting. First of all, body shaming is a criticism. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> if that's your argument, you're a loser by default. But firing all of this hate and vitriol towards someone for remixing a song that you liked, I can't fathom what good that could do. I didn't like the remix, but I just pushed it to the side afterwards and went back to the original version of Levitating because it was still there. I did not send hate messages to the Blessed Madonna or any of the remixes because one, I have a life, two, I have hobbies, three, I have self-respect, and four, it's just a fucking remix. It's not killing anyone. It's not offensive. It's not infringing on anyone's rights. It's just a fun experiment. Get over it. So, a few weeks after, Club Future Nostalgia, the album, got released. And I just want to talk about two of the tracks from this album. Two tracks that I feel more than made up for the disappointment I felt with the Levitating remix. One of the tracks is a remixed version of an unreleased track from the original Future Nostalgia sessions called Love is Religion. Now, I have a very fond love for the unreleased tracks from this album. I know I'm a hypocrite, having talked about leaks in the Charlie section and now talking about the little collection of leaks I have now. But, uh, yeah, unreliable narrativity. <laughs> but I have eight of these unreleased songs from the sessions on my computer, and I really love them. I hope that one day we get a side B of Future Nostalgia featuring these tracks. But Love is Religion is one of the two tracks that got a remix for from this session for this album, and it's the one I'm going to be talking about today. This song was solely remixed by the Blessed Madonna. It did not have any other producer features or any other features whatsoever. So for this one, it's all on her. And honestly, I think this remix is exceptional. I genuinely feel as if this version of the song could have been released as the original version. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the original leaked version of the song, and I'll still go back to that one. But with this remix, all of the additions to this song feel like they could have always been there. It's very rare of me to say something like that about a remix. But the upping of the tempo, the additional instrumental stuff that's added, the vocal layering, it just feels so natural and just right for this song. I was honestly so surprised about it, and it actually completely made up for the disappointment I had for the Levitating remix. So now we're going to talk about the other song from this album that I really love. And this one is a remix of an existing already released song that I really held dear to my heart, and I still do. So, the prospect of a remix of Physical was a very tall order as far as I was concerned. In my mind, 
the original version of Physical is perfect. That's not an exaggeration. This is one of the few songs that I think is genuinely, unironically pop perfection. So when I heard that Mark Ronson would be remixing this song, and it would have a feature from Gwen Stefani, I was definitely intrigued. I wasn't at the point of excitement, as I'd already heard the Levitating remix at this point, and around this time, I'd come to the conclusion, the wrong conclusion, that this entire project just wouldn't be for me. And I was at peace with that. But I went on Popheads and I had some more positive reception from the album, from people who didn't really like the Levitating remix, and I decided, okay, I'll listen to a few of the tracks, and I'll just pick a few out and see what it is. And one of the tracks that I picked was this one, the, the remix of Physical. Oh my gosh. I have to say, I was astounded. This remix holds up. It, like, it takes a completely different approach to the song, and it works just as well as the original, which is so strange to say. Like, the tempo is switched up, there's completely different production. Gwen takes a second verse, and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> my opinion of this remix is that it's worthy enough to be listened to alongside the original. And that, in my opinion, is the best case scenario for a song from a remix album, particularly a song from this remix album. The worst case scenario is if you just don't like the remix, but even then, you still have the original song. You can go and listen to that for the rest of your life while the remix fades into obscurity. But now, I have two versions of this song that I love, and that is pretty freaking awesome. So, now I've covered two very specific case studies, but I also want to briefly talk about the general concept of fandoms going to war for their faves. And this is where I also link this whole party to the world of makeup. Now, I'm not going to be talking too much about celebrity makeup lines because I have a lot of feelings about that subject. And I think those feelings have potential to form their own specialised conversation, i.e. another episode. But there are two instances where I think there's absolutely a relevance to this episode. So let's talk about them. My first instance is one that involves me. <laughs> yes, this is going to be a personal story. If you listen to one of the episodes of Maximelli with the Side of Beauty that I was on, I think the second episode that I was featured on, I do briefly talk about this with them, but if anyone's going to find a way to stretch out a story across multiple mediums, it's going to be me. So let's talk about my run-in with the little monster, shall we? When House Laboratories launched, I, as a long-time passionate fan of Lady Gaga, was rather underwhelmed. I had seen her create incredible things, elaborate staging through her tours, unique outfits and presentations, multiple iconic music videos with a pretty awesome fragrance campaign for her fame fragrance. She had a whole team of creatives around her, the House of Gaga, who helped her to bring her creative vision to life. And honestly, in this case, House Laboratories wasn't up to par with the incredible work I'd seen over the years. So let me hammer this next point into your skull until it hits your hypothalamus. I have been a lifelong Lady Gaga fan. She is one of my greatest inspirations in my work and in just living my life, period. I can name just about every single. I can name every album, every EP. I can list a bunch of people she's worked with in music and photography and videography. I can name a whole bunch of people from the House of Gaga. I mean that. This woman basically shaped my childhood. I wanted to be her when I was little. But even I can admit that not everything she does is perfect. Not every single one of her songs is something I'll go back to. She'd made questionable decisions in collaborators, participated in cultural appropriation, even used slurs. All things I don't agree with. 
But that doesn't detract from all the positive impact she's had, and the value she brings as an artist. That doesn't make me less of a fan. And actually, for me to be able to address these things and not just sweep them under the rug, I feel like that's a healthier approach to fandom than just unquestioned admiration. So, I made a video on my YouTube channel when House Labs launched, and I talked about how I was unimpressed with the line as a Lady Gaga fan. I inserted possibly the most disclaimers I'd ever inserted into any piece of media I've ever made. I really reiterated my admiration for Gaga. I really put this across in the most sincerely constructive way possible. That didn't stop a legion of stands from coming into my comments. <laughs> I was called ugly, fat, untalented, an attention seeker. I had my intelligence questioned. I was even called the problem with millennials. <laughs> And I don't even think I'm technically a millennial. I'm, I'm like in between generations. So that was rather disappointing. You'd hope that maybe fans of an artist would be open to questioning the decision of their faves, being able to critique their art in valuable ways. But no, I criticised one piece of art and therefore I needed to be taught a lesson. The lesson is that stands just aren't going to be reasoned with. Stands go about their day fighting hard for their faves. And that often means fighting their own because they don't stand hard enough. They don't love every single little aspect of their faves, and that means that they are inferior. But I think that's a really toxic mindset. Not just a toxic mindset, but just a bit unfulfilling, really. There's a great quote from a Jenny Nicholson video about Star Wars that can be applied to a lot of fandoms. Loving something unconditionally doesn't mean you love it more. It means you love it sadder. And that's true. Sometimes a big part of loving a piece of work is being able to look at it through a critical lens. If you don't question anything, chances are you'll just accept anything. You'll just sit there, happy with whatever gets sent to the table. And most of the time, you will be happy. But sometimes you'll get a dish served where it's got hair on it. And what then? Do you just eat the food with the hair on it? No. Sometimes you'll need to pick the hair off and find a way to appreciate the good food underneath. But sometimes you'll just have to send the dish back. But just eating up whatever you're given without asking yourself whether you'll really enjoy it? That's a sad way to engage with an artist's work. I think that this also applies with the recent launch of Rare Beauty, which is Selena Gomez's makeup line. It is essentially the same thing with a celebrity launching a makeup line and their fans going to bat for them in the most extreme ways. I've seen quite a few creators in the makeup world be quite hesitant to review the line because of backlash from stems. And yes, I think that there have been a lot of bad takes about celebrity beauty brands in general, a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of just plain bad critiques that are worth addressing. But creating a culture of fear where creators are pressured to not even constructively critique a product without getting bombarded with hate, it's something I just find disgusting and kind of horrifying. Product reviewers are there to review products. Media critics are there to critique media because often the best way to engage with media is to be able to question it as well as enjoy it. Nitpicking and constantly complaining is a terrible way to engage with media, but so is unquestioned loyalty and toxic positivity. And the latter is often common practice within pop fandoms. But not all pop fandoms are inherently negative. Hashtag not all pop stands. What I've noticed over the past few months is that K-pop stands have been really using their powers of Twitter dominance for good. Now, I've spent most of the past few years intimidated by the power of K-pop stands and getting their faves trending for the most uneventful reasons, but recently I've gained a whole new respect for them. Over the past few months, with the recent coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement, 
there have been a lot of not very good tags trending on Twitter. Tags that are perhaps rather racist. Tags used by white supremacists and MAGA fanatics who refuse to acknowledge the horrific systemic racism that permeates, well, the world. So, around this time, these tags were popping up in the trending tab of Twitter, like they would usually do. And one might think, oh, the racists are back out to parade their continued idiocy on the world. But when you click on the tag, you don't find that, or at least much of it. Instead, you find a community of K-pop stands lambasting the tags as the ridiculous sentiments they are, and instead posting fan cams of their favourite artists, fan cams being like compilations of concert footage and video footage of their favourite people, all while promoting a message of support towards Black Lives Matter and anti-racism. K-pop stands hijacked these tags, the All Lives Matter tag, the White Lives Matter tag, and posted tweets essentially saying, lol, this shit is ridiculous, anyway, Stan Luna. And honestly, <laughs> that is the kind of energy that has brightened up the trending page. Now, activism manifests in a lot of different forms, and one of those ways is beating the racists at their own game. Racists thrive through getting attention and taking away the attention from those racist sycophants and turning these tags into let's stand our favourite artists while pawning the MAGA heads, which might seem simple in the grand scheme of things, but it's also a simple way to get people involved in activism. The value of that is underappreciated, especially in a society that needs this kind of engagement. Activism can be intimidating, but something just like a tweet is important. It's important to remember that every little helps. This podcast is sponsored by Tesco. No, I'm just kidding. No, no sponsorship here. (laughs) So, outro time. I think it's important as a queer person to mention how uplifting pop artists and pop fandoms can be for LGBT plus teens. A lot of us are struggling, questioning ourselves, often going through a lot of shit from bullies, even our own families not accepting us. Having an artist there who's encouraging you to be who you are and be empowered in oneself is so valuable. I wouldn't be as proud as who I am if it weren't for people like Lady Gaga making that a mainstream topic. And for fans who are able to engage with their idols on social media, to essentially say thank you for doing what you do, that has the potential to be an amazing thing. However, in my mind, that means that as a fan, there's a level of reverence I need to hold to the artists I admire a level of respect and etiquette. And I think often, fans forget that. Fans will talk to their faves and to other fans in ways that are unacceptable, and not really question whether it's right to do so, not considering basic levels of respect. These artists are inventive, talented, and incredibly influential. But they're not gods. They're still human, and they should be treated as such. That means considering boundaries, considering the words you use the way you engage with their presence online and in person. I can do that because I wouldn't dream of upsetting, offending, or making my favourite artists uncomfortable. I can still critique the things they do as long as I'm doing it constructively and with respect. It's a balance, and I think some fans could use a reminder of that concept. Unquestioned positivity is not the way to handle fandom, but neither is aggressive confrontation and conflict. That is my thesis for this episode. Alright, now that we've had that conversation, please let me know what you think of this subject, because it is a doozy, and I think it's worth talking about. And if you enjoyed this episode, or you've been enjoying this podcast overall, go and subscribe to the podcast. You can leave a review if you want to, depending on the platform. 
or if by some chance you can't leave a review, share it. Share the episode on your socials if you would like to. And speaking of socials, come talk to me on one of mine, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Find me on either of those platforms. If you're really curious, you can try and find my Reddit, but that one's not going to be linked in the description. But IG, Tweety Bird, and the Tube will all be linked down below. <laughs> but thank you so much for listening to this episode. And remember, life is hard, but all you can do is try your best. See you next time.